0: Our speaker tonight is historian, best-selling author, and award-winning journalist, Dan Jones. A current resident of London and native of England, Jones studied at Pembroke College in Cambridge, England. He is the author of four books, including Summer of Blood, The Peasants' Revolt of 1381, an independent book of the year, and The Plantagenets, The Warrior Kings and Queens Who Made England a number one bestseller, and a book of the year in The Observer, The Times, and The Sunday Telegraph. Jones writes a regular column for the London Evening Standard and frequently contributes to The Times, The Daily Telegraph, Newsweek, GQ, and The Wall Street Journal, to just name a few. Jones also made a six-part TV series entitled Secrets of Great British Castles. Tonight, Dan Jones will speak about his most recent book, Magna Carta, in which he takes his readers back in time to the year when the Magna Carta was signed. Tonight, Jones will share with us why the Magna Carta has had such a lasting and international impact that continues to resonate today. Please join me in welcoming Dan Jones to the Boston Athenaeum.
1: Well, thank you to Deborah for that uh rather wonderful introduction. She promised she was going to speak in her best baritone, so, uh, so that we could all hear her voice kind of rolling around this beautiful room, and um, I, think, I think we'd all agree that she managed that. Uh, that was a very kind introduction. It's very kind of you all to come uh, to this extraordinary location tonight. It really is uh, a beautiful building, and I'm honoured to, to be here talking to you. Um, as Deborah said, I'm going to be talking about Magna Carta. Um, which is the subject of my new book. Now, usually, when I talk about Magna Carta, I, um, I, which I've been doing quite a lot this year because it's, it's a big anniversary year for Magna Carta, but usually you, you I start by painting a picture, if you will, of England in the year 1215. And specifically, the picture I, I try and sort of uh, conjure up is that which you might be familiar with from... Uh, I guess kind of Victorian watercolors and the, these these rather romantic images of of the signing, so called, of Magna Carta in 1215. And usually you have in these in these uh, pictures King John, King John, and he's sitting there with a quill in his hand um, at a table signing a sort of few papers like this, and around him are uh, a few barons looking very stern you sign that now John and they're wearing the kind of chain mail and so, sometimes sort of standing off to one side kind of smoking a cigarette is a knight templar uh, and then Robin Hood is often peering around a tree and it's this <laughs> lovely, lovely and the, the river Thames is flowing in the background it's a lovely pastoral image of, of England in 1215 which is almost wholly false but, uh, but nonetheless um, very enjoyable that's where I usually start. Uh, in a sense I've started there. But actually, um, I really want to talk firstly about somewhere, somewhere else, somewhere that's not Runnymede. And I want to start by telling you a little bit about um, Hereford Cathedral. Now, has anyone here been to Hereford Cathedral? OK, one person. Two people have been to Hereford Cathedral. And I'll tell you a little bit more, and I'm sorry, guys, if I, if I bore you. Um, for everybody else, Hereford Cathedral is... Really a very lovely Norman, originally Norman-built cathedral, although extended in the Gothic style, which is in a very pretty small town called Hereford, in the borders between England and Wales. And it is one of the great cathedrals of England, built over hundreds of years. It's the sort of place, actually, that when you think about it, you can hardly believe it even exists, let alone that most of it was built without modern construction techniques without modern construction machinery. It was done by the hands of men building to the glory of God. It's an extraordinary place. It's also an extraordinary repository of um, medieval, for want of a better word, stuff. It has a lot of medieval treasures. Treasures is the word we like to use, particularly in television. Treasures of medieval England. They are deposited and located in Hereford Cathedral. For example, it has the most exquisite chained library, full of ancient books, literally um, attached to, you know, secured in the shelves with metal chains, just as as they used to be when books uh, were more precious commodities than sometimes they are today. Obviously, I accept my own books from that, and I I do encourage you, when you buy one, to secure it to your shelf with a dog leash or whatever you want to use. Um, As well as the chained library... Hereford has two other great medieval treasures, and the first of them, which it's probably most famous for, is called the Mappa Mundi, literally the map, a map of the world. Uh, it's, an, it's an enormous map of the world, and it was created probably around the year 1300. Um, the other thing they have is a copy of Magna Carta, and that dates from slightly earlier, from the year 1217. It's two years older than the original that King John uh, granted um, but it's, it's ancient, obviously, and it's important in its own way. Now, probably about this time last year, I visited Hereford to do a bit of filming, and I took the opportunity to go and see both the Mappa Mundi and the Magna Carta that they held there. And as I, as I was looking at both of them, um, I was kind of struck by a th- Thought, and this happens very occasionally but it does happen a, a thought will occur and and this one came while I was looking at the map um, and the map of Mundi if you if you've never seen it, a picture of it it's it's seriously impressive it's seriously impressive it's huge uh, it's incredibly detailed and beautiful and it tells us some amazing things about how medieval people understood their world and when you first see it you can scarcely, um, scarcely get your head around the fact that it represents the same planet that we live on today. It, it looks very alien. It could almost be another world. And, uh, but when you, when you start to inspect it more closely, you can see many of the countries, um, not this country, I'm afraid, but many of the countries that we, we know today, they're there on the map. England, Ireland, France, Italy, uh, Egypt, Israel, India. China, Russia, and and many other places, some of them even further afield. But the thing about the map of Mundi is it's been distorted, I guess deliberately, in a sense, distorted in its creation, in its drawing. It's been squashed into a precise circular shape. It's oriented quite literally so that east is at the top and Jerusalem is right in the middle, and everything is built around this this scheme. Um, So to make sense of it, as a map with modern eyes, you you sort of have to, you end up, because East is there, you kind of end up craning your neck, and everyone who's looking at the the map of Mundi is standing, oh, this this is really wonderful, isn't it? Um, But even when when you're standing doing your your head head squint thing, um, there are still lots of odd things about this map, even when you've got used to the the sort of squashed up um, uh, nature of of the countries that are on it. For a start, Jerusalem, as I've said, is in the centre and everything else fans out around it. But there are other strange things in the Mappa Mundi as well. Because, as well as real cities, Jerusalem, Paris, London, Rome, it also includes places like the Garden of Eden and Noah's Ark and the path that the um, the Israelites took through the Red Sea in Exodus. And these are not things that we generally see on modern maps of the world, um, unless they're the names of nightclubs. Um, the Garden of Eden is a nightclub I've been to, and I, I don't go to the Garden of Eden. Um, as, so as well as, as the Garden of Eden and so on, um, there, are, there are things like mermaids, and there are allusions to classical mythology, and there are kind of... Strange animals, half-mythical, and there are angels, and, and there are biblical, um, more biblical places besides. Uh, things which in our mind today have no place on, uh, in a map of the actual world. So, all this is to say, as I was looking at the map of Mundi, I thought, well, this is very beautiful, and it's very strange, and it is in, in its way a wonderful work of art. But it is also essentially redundant. Um, in its original purpose. It's not a map uh, that you would use to plan your next vacation. It's not a map that you would use if you wanted to plan your route somewhere, unless you were going to Jerusalem or the Garden of Eden. Uh, You wouldn't use the map of Mundi to to plot your route. It has been superseded. We have Google Maps, okay? So in a sense the map of Mundi is a relic. Now I was thinking about all of this and then I sort of shifted over to look at the Magna Carta that's held in Hereford Cathedral. Now, the Magna Carta that's held in Hereford Cathedral is also rare. It's also ancient, and when you've looked at a lot of Magna Cartas, you sort of get a kind of Stockholm syndrome of Magna Carta and start to find them very beautiful. And I think the Hereford Magna Carta is, is, is rather a, a lovely thing to look at as well. Um, but like the Mapa Mundi, the Hereford Magna Carta is also full of redundant or obsolete or useless... Um, information and prescriptions. Um, None none of them are to do with unicorns or the Garden of Eden or whatever. There are sentences that go like this. No constable, governor, nor his bailiff shall take the corn or other goods of anyone who is not of that town where his castle is without instantly paying money for them unless he can obtain a respite from the free will of the seller. But if he be of that town wherein the castle is, he shall give him the price within 40 days." Well, fine. Uh, you know, and then you move on to all kiddels, which is a fish trap, essentially. All kiddels uh, for the future shall be quite removed out of the Thames and the Medway and throughout all England, excepting the seacoast. Well, again, that's a sort of interesting bit of information about the waterways of medieval England, but it, it, it bears really no. No relation to England. I know you probably think England is like the Hobbitsville, but I promise you, we've got rid of the fish traps and fish weirs out of the Thames and Medway a long time ago, and we're not worried about that anymore. Uh, You know, the Magna Carta in Hereford Cathedral says all patrons of abbeys which are held by charters of advows and from the kings of England, or by ancient tenure or possession of the same, shall have the custody. Uh, of them, when they become vacant, as they ought to have, and such as it hath been declared above. And you say, so what? And so, honestly, so what? And so he goes on. Now, this, it is true, it is true, of course, that in the middle of 1217 Magna Carta, there are two clauses that we do see as relevant today. Of course it is. And these are... Famous clauses echoing the original Magna Carta. No free man shall be taken or imprisoned or deceased, means dispossessed, of his free tenement or liberties or free customs or be outlawed or exiled or in any way destroyed. Nor will we condemn him, nor will we commit him to prison, excepting by the legal judgment of his peers or by the laws of the land. It goes on, of course, the next very famous clause, to no one will we sell, to no one will we deny or delay right or justice. Those are there within the Hereford Magna Carta, of course they are. But to get to them, my point is this, to get to them, you have to negotiate a mass of essentially obsolete pledges made by a 13th century king to a small group of his ultra-rich barons, much of which is concerned with arcane medieval feudal practice. And so as I stood there in Hereford looking at the Charter and I thought, it is odd, it really is odd, that whereas today we, we think of the Mapa Mundi as pretty but obsolete, when it comes to the Magna Carta, despite all of this, we still hold it in great veneration. Now, what I, I'm trying to suggest with all this is that there is manifestly something there, isn't there, in the Magna Carta That is extraordinary. There's something powerful. There's something transcendent. There's something, um, a gentleman who who introduced a talk I did yesterday, he said magical about the Magna Carta. There's certainly, I don't know about magical, but there's certainly something, there's a weight to the Magna Carta that is greater than the sum of its parts. But why? Why is that? So the first thing uh, in considering the question why is to examine Well, what are the the, the parts of Magna Carta? Where did Magna Carta come from? And I suppose the simplest thing we can say about Magna Carta, the first thing, the most obvious thing we can say about Magna Carta, is that it was a peace treaty. In the summer of 1215, the third Plantagenet king, King John, was at war with his own subjects. And more particularly... He was at war with a group of barons who they called themselves, the barons who were at war with their king, the Army of God and the Holy Church. And that's the sort of, I love that, the Army of God and the Holy Church is a sort of grandiose title that only rebels can really go about with any kind of seriousness. The Army of God and the Holy Church, and we're coming for you, King John. Um, What were the Army of God and the Holy Church complaining about? Well, they had a very long list of grievances. And I'll try and summarise them. The most immediate of the grievances, I think, was that uh, John had been attempting and failing to wage a very costly foreign war. His enemy was the King of France. And the reason for this was because during his reign and the earlier part of his reign, John reigned from 1199 uh, to, as we'll see, 1216, during the earlier part of his reign, John had inherited... What we can loosely call, we could quibble about the terms, but we will loosely call the Plantagenet Empire. Assembled by his father, defended, his father Henry II, defended by his brother Richard the Lionheart. This attached the crown of England to a massive swathe of what we would now call France, Normandy, Brittany... Anjou main terrain in the centre Aquitaine a huge sprawling duchy incorporating what we now think of as Gascony uh, Angoulême these sort of places in southwest France the English kings were lords uh, of so much right they controlled the entire western seaboard virtually of France now all of that had come into John's possession when he inherited the crown from his brother Richard the Lionheart in 1199 but unlike his brother Richard the Lionheart, John had been wholly, almost wholly, unable to defend it, and it, it, had, it had fallen piece by piece. Most of it he had lost, and most significantly, between twelve o or by twelve o three to twelve o four, John had lost the Duchy of Normandy. Very, very significant, because this, barring a, a few years of interlude, this had been attached to the English crown since the Norman Conquest of ten sixty six. This was a very serious loss of territory, and, and John had felt, felt its loss very keenly and had spent a great portion of his reign trying to win these lands back. In fact, he'd spent nearly a decade directing almost the, the entirety of his government policy towards raising the money to finance a war of reconquest. But it had gone wrong. It had gone badly, badly wrong. On July the 27th, 1214, uh, John's allies, including his half-brother, William Longspey, his uh, his nephew, Otto of Saxony, would-be, and sometime Holy Roman Emperor, they were defeated by the King of France at the Battle of Bouvines. Their armies routed, huge numbers of prisoners, including John's half-brother, had been taken, and it had been a, a crushing, crushing defeat for John's allies. Uh, allies whom he had paid very, very, very handsomely to support his cause against the King of France. And the net result was that John, uh, who had been uh, several a couple of hundred miles away from the battlefield uh, near La Rochelle at the time, John had been forced to return to England, broke with his military reputation on the floor, and his enemies at home ranged against him, ready to strike. And his enemies at home, by which we mean the barons of England, his enemies at home weren't simply annoyed that their king was not, not a wonderful military leader. It wasn't just a matter of embarrassment or humiliation. They had plenty, plenty more to be angry about. They were angry about John's tax policies. In order to raise money, John had used what we call his prerogative powers as king to levy what amounted to insanely high one-off feudal taxes on individual barons. He would find them huge amounts of money for what were called feudal incidents, for marrying, for um, uh, when the king's eldest son married, he would levy, when they wanted, particularly when they wanted to inherit, if a father died and a son wished to inherit, John would levy a tax of his own choosing. And it... It might be several hundred pounds. It might be several thousand pounds. The most egregious case was when uh, John uh, match-made a, uh, a marriage between his first wife, whom he discarded on becoming king, Isabel of Gloucester, and a baron called William de Mandeville. And he charged William de Mandeville 20,000 marks. Now it's very hard to make conversions over the centuries but we're, we're talking at least in terms of tens of, of 10 million, maybe tens of millions of dollars as a one-off fine to get married. Um, uh, some of us would pay uh, tens of millions dollars to unmarry um, uh, but let's, let's not go into that just now. Um, requ- you who know, we charge them for acquiring lands and for acquiring titles John was using his his prerogative powers as king to levy insanely high levels of tax on his subjects. He also grievously offended the church. The origins of this um, had been a dispute over the appointment of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton. Um, After Archbishop Hubert Walter, who'd served John's brother, had died in 1205, Um, Supposedly of an infected carbuncle on his back, very unpleasant. Um, John had decided to impose his own man on the English Church as Archbishop. The electors of Canterbury saw things otherwise and wanted to impose their candidate. Both sides appealed to the Pope in Rome, and Pope Innocent III, one of the great medieval popes, had imposed a third candidate, Archbishop Stephen Langton. John had refused to accept this. And as punishment, Innocent III had placed England under interdict. Essentially, I'm sure, as you all know, this means no church services allowed. No marriages, no, no uh, Christian, I mean, Christian burial is one exception, but no church services were allowed. And this interdict went on for more than five years. During the course of the interdict, which John cheerfully ignored, by the way, when the interdict was on, this was, John saw this not as a sort of uh, a punishment from God's representative on earth, but as a wonderful opportunity to enrich himself at the expense of the church. He diverted church revenues into his own coffers and made a fantastic, fantastic amount of money from doing so. Uh, He made uh, Innocent III even angrier. Innocent excommunicated John personally. uh, And this reinforced the popularly held view that John, like the rest of the Plantagenet family, was as John's brother claimed, descended from the devil. Richard the Lionheart was fond of saying, from the devil we came, and to the devil we will return. And people really believed that. People really believed that. In fact, there was this, I think there was this sense with the Plantagenets that uh, they were almost proud of this diabolical reputation. Um, John's father, Henry the Second, this is a slight digression, I, but I, I do like John's father, um, Henry II, had this wonderful mural in Winchester Castle, um, according to the Chronicle of Gerald of Wales, at any rate. And this mural was of a, uh, an eagle, a great eagle. And it had four eagle chicks, and they were all perched upon it with, you know, with their, their sort of talons on its side, and their, their sharp beaks. And um, they were all attacking the father. The, the eagle chicks were attacking the, the large eagle, and the smallest of the eagle chicks, and the most vicious, uh, was leaning over, about to peck its father's eyes out. And Henry II, he'd commissioned it himself. This was after his four sons had rebelled against him. And, he, uh, and he, he, if you went to Winchester Castle as a guest of Henry II, he'd sort of take you by the arm and lead you around. Look at this marvellous mural. And, and he would say, and that of, that's me... And that's uh, that's Henry, Geoffrey, Richard, and there's John. Just about pecked my eyes out. Aren't they wonderful kids? Huh? You know. Th- but there was this this real sense, this real sense that the Plantagenets were a diabolical, evil family, uh, and John had um, done absolutely nothing to dispel that. Besides all of this, as, it, as if this weren't enough, John had personal. Um, I suppose, with plenty of his subjects. He was said to have seduced the wives and daughters of some of his barons. He had a very, very bad habit of murdering people who offended him. Um, Probably most egregious amongst, amongst John's victims uh, was his nephew, Arthur of Brittany. Arthur of Brittany was, was a rival, really, for the throne. There was some uncertainty at John's accession as to which of them should become king of England, which of them should inherit the continental possessions. Um, John won that argument, and for good measure, uh, he he captured Arthur, locked him up um, in Rouen Castle, and so the story went that was, I think, believed at the time. At Easter in 1203, John got drunk, uh, bashed poor Arthur's head in with a stone, uh, and threw his body into the River Seine. Um, that was certainly what people believed at the time, and there's no doubt that Arthur of Brittany disappeared. This is a story that was taken on by Shakespeare in his play about King John and, and given um, even more of a dramatic shape to it. But John, had, John was responsible for the murder of his nephew, Arthur of Brittany. He was also responsible for the absolutely dreadful treatment of many of his friends, and one of them included a man called William de Bruz, who was a, a, a baron who'd made very good out of loyal service to John, very likely William de Brus knew what had happened to Arthur of Brittany. That seems to be what William's wife, Matilda, had said within earshot of John. And this had set off John in, in a sort of paroxysm of fury, in which... He'd, pursued, he'd started to strip William de Bruges of his lands. He'd started to use every tool of government to call in debts that William owed to the crown. He pursued William and his family through Wales, through Ireland. William fled into exile in France. Matilda de Bruges, William's wife, and their eldest son, also called William, were not so lucky. They fell prisoner to John and were starved to death in the dungeons of, of Corfe Castle. And it was said... It was said, all these scandalous stories attached to John, it was said that when the door of their dungeon was opened, they were found sort of huddled in this grotesque embrace of death, the mother having tried to eat the son's face as she she went mad with starvation. Um, This was just one of the stories that attached itself to John, and there were too many of them for at least some of it not to be true. He was widely seen as cruel, unchivalrous, cowardly, and untrustworthy, in an age where that still really mattered. You know, you can, you can go a very long way in this age, it seems to me being cruel, unchivalrous, cowardly, and untrustworthy. Uh, you know, you could, you could look at the leaders of our shared nations and, and see that. Um, but in an age where chivalry was still important, it was, it was really bad form to be starving people to death. Anyway, all of this, all of this put together was enough to provoke an armed uprising of the English barons against King John in the spring of 1215. And the key moment, really, in that uprising, which was led by a man called Robert Fitzwalter, who was, he called himself, Marshal of the Army of God and the Holy Church. The key moment of that really occurred on May the 17th, 1215, when... Uh, In the culmination of a deal done between the barons and the merchants, the sort of financial um, interests within the city of London, London was surrendered to the rebellious barons. It was a Sunday morning, so the Chronicles say. Uh, Most of the inhabitants of London were in church. The rebellious barons arrived outside the walls and they were permitted entry to London. Well, once they held London, the English capital, then as now really a sort of powerhouse Uh, of of political and financial um, muscle. Uh, This forced John to the negotiating table. It was for very very good practical reasons. John's treasuries were located at the Tower of London, John's uh, and Westminster, and both of these John could now no longer access. So in June of 1215, John was absolutely forced to the negotiating table to come to terms with his barons in order to delay the outbreak of full civil war. Now, the deal that was thrashed out, they came together at Runnymede, so the barons held London. John was forced to retreat to his castle at Windsor, which is some way about 25 miles up the River Thames. And the deal that was thrashed out at Runnymede was written up into a number of identical documents, and that text, that deal, is what we now call the Magna Carta. There was no, we think, original Magna Carta. There is no sort of master document. What survived from 1215 are four more or less identical texts of the same agreement. And that's what what I I mean when I I refer to Magna Carta uh, for the next few minutes. The Magna Carta, 63 clauses long, was the product of several weeks of hard negotiating done at Runnymede. Now in the middle of all this, was Archbishop Stephen Langton. Yes, the same Archbishop Stephen Langton who had caused so much problem uh, during the interdict. Well, John had been reconciled in 1213 with the Pope and with Langton. Langton had been admitted to England. Uh, and it is to Langton's eternal credit that he put aside what must have been some, some incredibly uh, strong feelings towards John in order to perform with great, uh, I think, dignity and skill, the job of mediation at Runnymede in the creation of Magna Carta. Langton really is, is the forgotten man of Magna Carta. He was an extraordinarily capable individual. And if we, if we were to put aside his role in 1215 and, even, and just look at his career, he was, he was a, a really serious, um, a, a towering intellect, really, of his age. He was one of the greatest... Uh, scholars at the University of Paris, he was a theologian, he was a deep thinker, he was responsible for dividing the Bible into the chapters by which we still use it, even if it were not for Magna Carta. In fact, Magna Carta probably got in the way. If it weren't for Magna Carta, we'd, we'd remember Langton, I would hope, for his, his achievements. He'd written at great length and lectured at length about ideas that had been shared by John of Salisbury, by Thomas Beckett before him. Uh, about the nature of tyranny the nature of the difference between a prince and a tyrant at what point it was legitimate to rise up and depose Langton had thought about all of this and and when you look at his career he must have had sympathy his sympathies must have lain as some of the chroniclers said with the barons but he performed a very very even handed task at Runnymede in negotiating um, this peace treaty we know because draft documents survive, that the agreement that became Magna Carta was the product of, I suppose, what you could call a lot of horse trading, Um, trading and dealing and and negotiating uh, in committee over tax levels. What should the rate of inheritance tax for barons be set at? Um, It included special interest groups. Langton's one concession to um, private interest was to ensure... Uh, that a clause was inserted into Magna Carta about the freedom of the church. The interest, the financial interest, the merchants of the City of London made absolutely sure that their deeds in, in handing London over to the rebels um, uh, received uh, recompense by, uh, by guaranteeing their freedoms as well. There were, so there were lots of interests all piled into Magna Carta. And what this amounted to, after several weeks of negotiating was an agreement that, as I've said, is, is, was divided, and still is divided, into 63 separate chapters. It ran to around uh, 3,500, 4,000 words of, when it's written down, heavily truncated, contracted uh, medieval Latin. But what this amounted to, I think, was the most ambitious attempt in English history to encode the laws and customs of the realm and to provide a mechanism by which the people could compel the king to stick to them. It was a statement of law and it was also a mechanism for forcing the government to obey the law. And this was, in, in many senses, unprecedented. There had been statements of English custom before, it is true. Coronation charters by kings like Henry I, Henry II. But there hadn't been anything on this scale attempted before. So what were some of these 63 clauses? Um, I've read them for the audio book of Magna Carta, and I've no intention ever to do it again. Uh, however, in English and not in Latin, um, you can buy the audiobook if you if you are mad enough to want to hear me do that. But I will give you a flavour of what those clauses were. And with broad strokes, they included commitments that, as I said, the English church, this was the, the first... Uh, first statement of Magna Carta: The English Church should be free from royal interference. The king couldn't place his own men in bishoprics. He couldn't meddle in the dealings of the church. The English Church was to be free. The city of London, likewise, was to be free, and those two, uh, uh, effectively or theoretically, still in force in England today. Inheritance tax for barons should be limited to one hundred pounds per inheritance, which was somewhat less than the, the £3,000, 5000 £10,000 that John had been charging. £100 pounds was the, 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 threat, the inheritance tax threshold effectively set by Magna Carta. Magna Carta uh, committed the king to ensuring that widows should have rights to their husband's inheritance guaranteed as well, that they shouldn't have to pay monstrous fees as John had been charging some of them that they should be allowed to stay in their marital home for 40 days after the death of their husband. Their estates and their homes couldn't be just arbitrarily taken away from them. Magna Carta demanded or or, um, committed the king to sending his justices, his judges, regularly, four times a year, to hear cases in the shires. Magna Carta um, committed the king to throwing his foreign advisers and his foreign mercenaries out of the country. Magna Carta stated that in order to tax his people, that the king ought to consult them in some way, which would eventually become the principle that lay behind Parliament. Magna Carta stated that land which had been designated as royal forest, which is to say land which was um, uh, either fenced off or enclosed or at least uh, marked as, as royal forest land, on this sort of land only the king or people the king allowed could hunt, could chop down trees, could erect buildings, could allow their, their pigs or their, uh, their other animals to graze. Land that had been newly created as royal forest um, should be put back into either private ownership or co- common ownership, whatever it had been um, several decades previously. Of course, in the middle of all of this, there were those two great clauses I read before, which merit reading again. No free man shall be arrested or imprisoned or deprived of his possessions without due process of law or the judgment of his peers. To no one will we sell, to no one will we deny or delay right or justice, clauses 39 and 40 of the original Magna Carta. Yes, they were there right in the heart of it, and it is those clauses that have endured for centuries, which have their echoes, for example, in the US Bill of Rights, in the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's probably those clauses, 39 and 40, uh, that FDR was thinking of when he said that the democratic aspiration is no no mere recent phase in human history, it is written in the Magna Carta. It was probably those clauses that Nelson Mandela was thinking of when he praised the Magna Carta at the Rivonia trial in 1964. But what I would say is that in 1215, those two clauses... Enduring though they are, were not the most important words in the Charter. They were important, yes, but they weren't the most important. In fact, I think the most important words of the 1215 Magna Carta came somewhat closer to the end in the 61st Clause, known as the Security Clause. And the Security Clause, one of the longest clauses in the document, was something very novel and very interesting indeed, because it stated briefly... And if the king refused to obey Magna Carta, or stopped obeying Magna Carta, or stopped allowing his subjects the, the rights and the customs which had been laid out in, in great and detailed uh, schedule in Magna Carta, then a council of 25 of his barons could distress and distrain him in any way they thought fit, uh, essentially. What that means is they could force him to do right by them, or to put it another way, This was a license for them to make war upon him in order to compel him to stick to the terms of the agreement. And that sounds good, but the minute you start to think about it, it is absolutely fatal. Because, to return to my first point, what was Magna Carta? Magna Carta was a peace treaty. And yet here, within this peace treaty, was a mechanism for very quickly starting a civil war. And that is exactly what happened. Almost as soon as the ink was dry on the copies of the charter that were sent out around England, John started to wriggle. He was, he'd been stalling for time anyway, and it, I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain that John never had the slightest intention of keeping to the terms of Magna Carta. It would have been wholly out of character if he had. And so he wrote to the Pope, he wrote to Pope Innocent III, And part of the deal with Innocent III for reconciling over the interdict crisis was that John had signed England away to the papacy as a papal vassal state. Effectively, he said, England ultimately, I'm the king, but ultimately my boss, my feudal boss, is the Pope. And and now this came good, because he wrote to the Pope saying, Dear Innocent, I didn't say dear Innocent, but I I will paraphrase, dear Innocent, I've gone and done something rather silly. You know those barons, I've gone and agreed a very long charter, committing myself to an awful lot of customs. Um, Would you be so kind as to get me out of it? And the Pope wrote back and said, absolutely, John. Um, Absolutely, not a problem at all. Uh, And the Pope said the Magna Carta was null and void of all validity forever. And that anyone who obeyed its terms would, be, would suffer the penalty of excommunication. Um, or to put it more boldly, they would burn in the fires of hell for all eternity. There was not much messing around when it came to Innocent III. Um, he chastised, absolutely chastised the barons, and he chastised, most. really sadly of all, he chastised Stephen Langton and said, I cannot believe... You've, I've, I told you to mediate, you were supposed to be sorting this out, now look what's happened. And eventually lantern would actually be suspended for, from, from duties, for, despite having had good intentions all the way through. Anyway, put that aside, when the letters from Innocent III reached England, predictably, there was uproar. And the civil war that everyone had wanted to avoid, that civil war broke out in earnest. On John's side, he filled the country with foreign mercenaries. On the barons' side, they invited a rival king to come. They considered John to have totally broken whatever contract there was between them, whatever commitments he'd made. He was now defunct, effectively, as a king. And they invited a replacement king from France, the son of the king of France, known as Louis the Lion. He, came, he was invited over to England. They said, bring some knights, come to England. If you want the throne, it's yours. It's yours. And it may sound strange, but actually, if you put yourself in, in 1215, well, 1066 had seen a bunch of Frenchmen come over and take the crown and put all their guys in the top jobs. 1154, when John's father, Henry, had arrived, well, there was another guy from central France who'd come over and taken the crown and put his... You know, this would have just been... Another one of those. Oh, well, every 60 years or so, the French come and invade and we have a, a new king. I, it wouldn't have seemed that strange. That's what the barons did. They invited the son of the King of France to come and become the new king. They retained London. Um, John, as I said, filled the country with mercenaries, mainly through, uh, from northwest Europe, coming through the ports of, of southeast England, Kent, and so on. And uh, a vicious conflict started to spread up and down the country. A conflict on the scale of probably the anarchy of Stephen Matilde. It was, it was building towards that kind, which was, had been the, the most terrible war of, um, of the 12th century. Uh, and in fact, the entire Plantagenet project had been about stabilising England after that war. Well, one of those wars was, about, was, was, was breaking out. In all of this, Magna Carta was forgotten. And I think if you if you sort of pause the tape of this story at the end of 1215, and if you pretend that we were um, we were film producers or, or television producers, we we're going to make one of those sort of end of year that was the year that was programmes, and it was sort of Christmas time on in in the telly in 1215, um, then would we have said, oh, wonderful peace treaty, Magna Carta, greatest thing that happened this year? No, we absolutely would not have said that. Would have said there's a civil war going on and something happened in Runnymede that kicked it all off but I I doubt they will be talking about it in 800 years time, it would have seemed very unlikely because Magna Carta in the context of the autumn and and early winter, 1215 going to 1216 as we date it now Magna Carta was a total failure or at least Magna Carta was a total failure until John died, he did if you like the decent thing in October 1216 uh, he, he was good enough to contract dysentery, having, so the story goes, lost much of his royal baggage uh, and 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 jewellery in the wash through marshy area, uh, northeast England. John died, and he left the he, he left his inheritance, he left his crown, uh, to his ten-year-old son, Prince Henry, who became Henry III. Um, I don't think John was mourned greatly certainly if we believe the chronicle of Matthew Paris, now Paris was not an enormous fan of John, nor had been his predecessor at St Albans, Roger Wendover nevertheless Paris is usually worth quoting and Matthew Paris writing about John's death said, these are the final words of, of one of the chapters of his history of these times all England reeks with John's filthy deeds foul as it is Hell itself is defiled by John's presence. (laughs) Put that on your tombstone, mate. Right. Um, There weren't actually, I don't think there were many people who'd have disagreed. I honestly don't. However, however, as I said, John had achieved something by dying. Because in John's death, the charter that he had been so lukewarm, let's say, about suddenly came back to life. Magna Carta's afterlife, its survival, which is something quite distinct from its original making. Magna Carta's afterlife began at the moment of John's death. (laughs) Excuse me. And that was because the people surrounding the young king, Henry III, uh, among them um, the the self-proclaimed greatest knight of his age, William Marshall, as well as a, a papal legate, they did something rather brilliant. They, if you like, dusted off Magna Carta. They removed some of its most troublesome clauses, in, in particular the security clause. And they presented it to the realm not as a treaty um, uh, foisted on an unwilling king, something that was pushed onto the, the monarchy, but something that was given of the king's own volition, that was presented to the realm as a platform for a new government, something, a government that was reformed, a government that was willing to listen to its subjects' grievances. So Magna Carta was reissued in 1216, and it was reissued again in 1217, by which time uh, Henry III had been crowned, albeit rather hastily, in Gloucester. Um, the Battle of Lincoln had been won against uh, Prince Louis of France's troops, and Louis had effectively been paid to leave the country. So some military stability had been given to the situation. But that was really contingent on and dependent on this notion that Magna Carta could be something around which people could could gather and start to build a reformed England, a reformed monarchy. And that process of reissuing Magna Carta in 1216 and 1217 became a pattern that, that carried on throughout the 13th century. In 1225 when Henry III reached adulthood. It was reissued again, this time in exchange for taxation, so that Henry III, um, having not paid uh, wholly paid attention to his father's reign, could go and try and win back some Plantagenet lands in France. But that's somewhat of a dish- different issue. Thereafter, during the 13th century, at every major moment of political or constitutional crisis, or at a moment when, when the king needed, was in particular need of taxation... Magna Carta would be reissued or reconfirmed. That happened in 1237. It happened in 1265, at the height of the Second Barons' War between Simon de Montfort and Henry III. It happened in 1297, when Edward I was suffering a, a, a moment of um, quite substantial political crisis because his wars. Edward, III, Edward I sorry, um, confirmed Magna Carta for the last time in 1300. But it had been confirmed or re-granted several times more during the course of the 13th century. What also happened during the course of the 13th century was this idea that I mentioned in Magna Carta of the king having to meet with representatives of his subjects if he wished to take tax. All that started to to happen. And what emerged was something that we now call Parliament. Parliament. The, the gathering together of, firstly, of barons, then of knights, who in some way represented uh, the interests of free men in the shires. This became uh, eventually started to become an institution, certainly by the end of the, uh, of the 13th century. And as Parliament developed, it developed confidence, it developed procedure, it developed tradition, Magna Carta started to be read at the beginning of Parliament. And so the effect of that was that by 1300, Magna Carta had become a legend, a myth, a symbol. It stood for the crown's willingness to observe customs, to observe rights. And if you like it, if you like, it was the symbol of what we would now call the social contract. And that fame, the fame of Magna Carta, which sprang up in the 13th century, would endure. In the 17th century, when English rebels faced down the Stuart Kings, James I and Charles I, who wasn't just face down but had his head chopped off, jurists like Sir Edward Cook looked to Magna Carta, looked to the story of King John's reign for inspiration. And they saw in the early 13th century, in 1215, a time when their you know, earlier English subjects, their, their ancestors, had opposed a tyrannous king and forced him to admit their rights. And they thought they could do the same. In England, this this carried on really all the way through uh, the 17th century. At the end of the 17th century, the Glorious Revolution, which finally saw the Stuarts chased out of England, um, that that ended up with an English Bill of Rights, which is strangely forgotten uh, in English political discourse today. Um, but an English Bill of Rights was, was passed, and that, I think, again, was supposed to echo, perhaps even in some ways, to replicate Magna Carta. But, of course, I think the, the most important moment in the history, or the afterlife, certainly, of Magna Carta was at the end of the 18th century, when subjects of the British crown here, almost literally here, sought to assert their own rights. And they again looked to Magna Carta. And I think the founding fathers, I think they they saw important precedent for their own actions in what had happened in part in 1215. And if you look at the Declaration of Independence, well, that makes some of the same criticisms, these self-same criticisms of George III that the Magna Carta had made against King John. Declaration of Independence complains against taxation without consent, against the, the refusal to allow jury trial, against the use of foreign troops, against the king's own subjects. The United States Constitution, well, that echoes Magna Carta as well. It echoes it almost uh, word for word in one place. In Article 3, the trial of all crimes except in cases of impeachment shall be by jury. That is a reformulation, much more elegant in my opinion, but a reformulation of Clause 39 of the 1215 Magna Carta. The Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Bill of Rights. Again, this is a reformulation of Magna Carta. No person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. These are the same ideas, separated by nearly half a millennium of history. More than half a millennium. And we still recognize that influence of Magna Carta here, in the United States today, if, if, I'm sure more of you have been to the U.S. National Archives than have been to Hereford Cathedral. Please tell me you have. Who's been to the U.S. National Archives? Right. Okay, some slightly more. Well, let me tell you about your own National Archives. You go to the U.S. National Archives. I did this um, last uh, last summer. You go to the U.S. National Archives, and after you've been through that sort of slightly. Uh, Onerous airport-style security, where you have your kind of underpants x-rayed and so on. The first, what's the first thing that you see? The first thing that you you clap eyes on is Magna Carta. It's the 1297 edition, originally granted by John's grandson Edward I. Um, that was most recently bought by David C. Rubenstein at auction from Ross Perot, 2007, for I think 21. 0.7 million dollars. But it's there. It's on loan to the nation. It's, it's on public display. It is the first thing you see in the National Archives. Now, I think the, the US National Archives is one of my favourite buildings. It's, if you've ever been to the UK National Archives, I mean, it's like they just dumped cement and let it spread. It's hideous. Whereas the US National Archives is this sort of grand, neoclassical, wonderful thing. There's huge wooden doors you go through. Anyway, the whole thing... As you travel through the archives, you know, it starts with the Magna Carta and it builds the rotunda at the top, where you have the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. And that's, that's a physical, as well as a metaphorical journey from this small piece of, of Latin-covered parchment that's you know, nearly 800 years old, up to the crowning moment, the, the documents that created this great nation. It's there, it's 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 built, I think it's done deliberately. I hope it's done deliberately. I mean it fooled me. Anyway, in that sense, the Magna Carta almost literally underpins the founding principles of the United States. But if the issues surrounding Magna Carta concern the founding fathers, well, perhaps they should also concern us today. And the one thing I want to emphasize is that even if Magna Carta is ancient and written in Latin and often, as I said at the beginning, feudal and dustily technical, it also speaks to issues that everyone thinks about today. It's about taxation. How much should the government tax us? What's an acceptable level of inheritance tax? It's about war. Do we want to pay for the government to fight foreign wars? Whether or not we can immediately see the links with our safety at home. John, of course, in 1214 had been fighting in France, but his brother Richard, who had helped create a lot of the the problems, a lot of the situation that led to Magna Carta, where had Richard been fighting? He'd been fighting in Syria. Magna Carta is about unlawful arrest and imprisonment. Can government agents really just arrest, hurt, kill citizens effectively because they want to? Can the government really deny access to justice just because it feels like it? Or is this accessible to to everybody who's a part of society? Magna Carta is about, on a broad sense, the creep of government into our everyday lives. Now, the Plantagenets had been relentlessly extending their jurisdiction and their legal powers into traditionally private spheres. And this was people reacting against that. And there are plenty more issues in Magna Carta as well. And not all of them uh, you know, are, are domestic. Let's think about the question that's, that's there in Magna Carta in its, in its deepest uh, principles. When does it become legitimate to depose a tyrant who's oppressing his people? Well... That's not necessarily a question for for us in the United States or the United Kingdom, but it's certainly the key foreign policy question of our age, is it not? So Magna Carta isn't just a historical antique. It's something that should be thought about and chewed over and studied by all of us, whether here in the United States or elsewhere in the world. And I'm going to close and I'm going to take some questions, but there's one last thing I want to say, and I want to go back to that Hereford copy of the Magna Carta that I was talking about at the beginning. Because right now, that's not in Hereford, it's in China. And it was loaned by Hereford to China to be put on display, and it was supposed to be on display at the University of Beijing, and it was supposed to be on display in the new Shanghai Tower, on public display. But it didn't go on display at Beijing University, and it didn't go on display at the Shanghai Tower. Because the Chinese authorities, um, and while they've made excuses about you couldn't get the right permissions here, oh, there was, there was danger of fire in the Shanghai Tower, the Chinese authorities, I think, have decided that this ancient piece of parchment, written in abbreviated Latin and mainly concerned with feudal principle, is too dangerous to young Chinese minds to be shown freely in public. So instead, it's, it's been tucked away in ambassadors' houses in Beijing and Shanghai, where it's much, obviously much harder to view. Meanwhile, at home, of course, in London, what, what, who's the, well, the president of China is being fated and staying in Buckingham Palace and having a jolly time. Literally, the red carpet rolled out. Um, if you're looking for an example of the potency of Magna Carta and its, its power as a symbol of the rule of law, the principles of liberty, and the notion that people should be free from oppression, well, there it is in China right now with the Hereford copy. Thank you very much for listening.